Let us read the word of God. Acts 14, 8-11 Acts 14, 8-11 And in Lystra a certain man without strength in his feet was sitting, a cripple from his mother's womb, who had never walked. This man heard Paul speaking. Paul, observing him intently, and seeing that he had faith to be healed, said with a loud voice, Stand up straight on your feet. And he leaped and walked. Now when the people saw what Paul had done, they raised their voices, saying in the Lyconian language, The gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Amen. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Pray that as we study it today, we'll be blessed. Holy Spirit, enlighten our minds, our eyes, the eyes of our understanding. May you give us revelation on this great subject of faith, that we might be equipped to further your kingdom on this earth. We ask it in Yeshua's mighty name. Amen. Well, we have been discussing the whole subject of faith. In our first lesson, I went to great lengths to try and impress on us how important faith, whatever faith may be, is, and how important it is to God. Remember, we read the scripture in Hebrews, without faith, it's impossible to please Him. And I'm sure all of us want to please the living God. The reason why very simply stated, is that faith, whatever it may be, is necessary for God to operate on the earth. God created systems. In the beginning, if you think about the creation, he created a whole network of systems. That is God's nature. He creates systems. Now our responsibility is to find out what those systems are and to get them to work for us. Faith is one of these great systems. It's the method God has created on this earth for heaven to break out. Heaven doesn't just break out on the earth by chance. We are exhorted to pray in the Lord's Prayer. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come on the earth as it is in heaven. Why would we have to pray that prayer if God's kingdom breaking out on earth was automatic. And if we look around us, clearly God's kingdom breaking out on the earth is not automatic. We have to do something. The children of God have to do something. And as we are going to see, one of the great things we have to do in all its application and manifestation is demonstrate what the word calls faith. Now, we saw in this small scripture, Paul saw that the man had faith. For that reason, the great miracle could take place. But the question is, what is faith? What exactly is this thing called faith? And we're going to be studying that because most Christians don't really understand this. And the reason we don't understand it far too often is that we've got a vague concept. You see, the devil works with vague. Many people, if you ask them, do you know what faith is? They will say, of course I know what faith is. 
and then they will proceed to give some explanation, if pushed, which, if you analyze it, has got nothing to do with real faith at all. Now, before we actually talk about what faith is, this lesson is devoted to looking at common misconceptions that Christians have. What faith is not. Far too often, as I've said, we make assumptions. And if those assumptions do not line up with the Word of God, we try to survive on a false notion. You see, and when that false notion does not prove sufficient for the issue at hand, we suffer the loss of somebody or great tragedy, then we blame God. You see, All the while, the fault wasn't God's. The fault was ours. There was a vacuum in our understanding. So you see, our purpose in this whole course is to try as best we can to remove these misconceptions. And so in this lesson, what we are going to be looking at is what faith is not. What faith is not. By process of elimination, we can ultimately come to some conclusion what faith is. But you see, we want to clear the way. If you and I are living with a misconception, hopefully, as we talk about these things, that misconception will be exposed so that our thinking can be aligned with the Word of God. Now, in discussing this, it's very important to understand, as always, the makeup of man. If we look at the book of Thessalonians, scripture we often allude to in this regard. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 23, reads there, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. Sanctification here is speaking about made whole. See, May God sanctify you completely. And may your whole, listen to this, spirit, soul and body be preserved blameless at the coming of our Lord Yeshua the Anointed One. You see that? May your whole spirit, soul and body be preserved blameless. Man is a tripartite being. As we've said so many times, we are a spirit, we have a soul, and we live in a body. Now the point I'd like to make at the outset is that faith, real faith, is the preserve of the spirit being. We will explain this in detail later. It is the preserve of the spirit being. Yes, our soul being our mind and our emotions, can affect it and also our body, our physical body. But primarily speaking, faith is the preserve of the spirit man, as we will discuss. The danger comes, generally speaking, when we try to use our soul man to understand faith. The moment we do that, as we are going to show, we get into great difficulties. Now you see, the Word of God is there to help us to dissect the difference between what is spirit and what is soul. If you go to Hebrews 4, verse 12, it speaks about this. Hebrews 4, verse 12. Please just bear with me. There's quite a lot to be understood here, and we need to do it thoroughly and patiently. If we read Hebrews 4 verse 12, it says there, For the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit. Do you see that? 
the division of soul and spirit, and of joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. You see, there is this divide between the spirit and the soul. They are connected, but they are also divided. It's a paradox. But you see, faith is the preserve of the spirit, as we will see. The danger comes when we start to try and apprehend it with our soul man. And you see, part of our soul is our intellect, our ability to think and rationalize. It's a good ability, but it must not dominate. Now, you see, when you and I confuse our rational thinking with faith, we fall into great difficulty. Simply stated, our first, what faith is not, is faith is not an intellectual state of mind. Now please, the mind is important, as we will see. But ultimately, your state of mind is not what constitutes faith. Let's just look at Romans 10, 8 and 10. I'm going to repeat this point a number of times because it's not that easy to grasp. As humans, we've lived for a large part of our lives in the intellectual realm, the touch of emotion here and there. But the world of the spirit is distinct. And if we don't have a clear understanding, our understanding of faith becomes extremely, extremely limited and in a sense dangerous. Let's go to Romans 10, 8 to 10. But what does it say? The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith which we preach. That if you confess with your mouth the Lord Yeshua and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Do you see where the believing takes place? We'll come back to the scripture in another context. But you see, the believing, the actual faith, takes place in the heart. With the heart, man believes. Heart speaks of the spirit man. Mind speaks of the soulish intellectual part. And feelings, of course, also part of the soul. So the point is this, that faith is not the preserve of the intellectual mind. What that means simply stated is, a person may say, yes, I believe. But because you believe with your mind, you think it's right, you agree, does not mean that you really believe. It's really hard to grasp this sometimes. But you see, mere mental assent is not the same thing as faith. Let's look at classic examples in the Word. We go to Exodus, and one can read Exodus 15 for ourselves. We all know the story. Israel up against a wall. Well, not up against a wall, really, up against the sea. Other side mountains, and here comes the enemy bent on destroying them. Moses, instructed by God, lifts his staff. The sea parts, an ocean parts. Just think about it. And the whole nation passes through on dry ground. They get to the other side. They look back. Here comes the Egyptian army. They get into the sea, and the sea just swallows them all up. 
So mighty act of God, and Israel witnesses it firsthand. Right? Had you spoken to one of those Israelites just after that event and asked them this question, do you think that God is all-powerful? What do you think they would have said? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. No doubt. Look what's happened. We've seen it with our eyes. They even wrote a song about it. Miriam danced with the tambourine and they created a song about how God had cast horse and the rider into the sea. So you see right there, intellectually, if you had asked them, can God do anything? The answer would have been an unequivocal, of course. Are you a fool? You see. However, fast forward a few weeks, we go to Exodus 16. I'm just going to read from 1 to 3. This is not long after this great miracle has been witnessed and experienced, you see. And they journeyed from Elam, and all the congregation of the children of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai. On the fifteenth day of the second month, after they departed from the land of Egypt, then the whole congregation of the children of Israel complained against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the children of Israel said to them, Oh, that we had died at the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt, when we sat by the pots of meat and when we ate bread to the full. For he have brought us out into the wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. See that? Not two weeks later. They had seen the great hand of deliverance of God. A mighty ocean parted. They crossed through. The Egyptians drowned. Safe and sound on the other side. Was there any doubt in their minds that God could do anything? No. But the problem was, the understanding was only in their minds. So you see, when the test came, when push came to shove, not a fortnight later, they are complaining to Moses, and in a sense, complaining that God is not able. Can you see? If you and I, when we are in a good place and everything's going fine, we say, yes, I know God can help us. Look how he's helping us. A week later, once diagnosed possibly with a life-threatening disease, well, we have the same confession. You see, it's not just a question of knowing things with our mind. There's something else that has to take place. This thing called faith. Let's look at the New Testament scripture. Mark 6, 35. Let's go to the Gospel of Mark. Chapter 6, verse 35. Once again, very well-known passage of Scripture, this miracle of the loaves and the fishes. So let's read Mark 6, 35. When the day was now far spent, his disciples came to him and said, This is a deserted place, and already the hour is late. Send them away, that they may go into the surrounding country and villages and buy themselves bread, for they have nothing to but he answered and said to them, You give them something to eat. And they said to him, Shall we go and buy two hundred denarii worth of bread and give them something to eat? But he said to them, How many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they found out, they said, Five and two fish. 
Then he commanded them to make them all sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in ranks, in hundreds and in fifties. And when he had taken the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven, blessed and broke the loaves, and gave them to his disciples to set before them. And the two fish he divided among them all. So they all ate and were filled, and they took up twelve baskets full of fragments and of the fish. Now those who had eaten the loaves were about five thousand men, not to mention possibly the women and children. So we've got at least five thousand people fed effectively with five loaves and two fish. And not only that, massive baskets of fragments left over. So the disciples were an integral part of this whole miracle. They saw it with their own eyes and they partook of it with their very own hands. They saw and experienced the multiplication of five loaves and two fish. An awesome supply miracle. Had you asked them that day after they had gathered all those fragments, do you think God can supply as much food as anybody could need in the wilderness, what do you think the answer would have been? They'd probably look at you and say, are you foolish? Did you not see? They would have been convinced, totally convinced. They'd just seen it. Amen. So in their minds, no doubt whatsoever, God is able. But hold on. Let's just fast forward to Mark 8. Mark 8 from verse 1. In those days, the multitude, being very great and having nothing to eat, Yeshua called his disciples to him and said to them, I have compassion on the multitude, because they have now continued with me three days and have nothing to eat. That's a case of deja vu, is it not? Exactly similar situation. Identical situation. And if I send them away hungry to their own places, They will faint on the way, for some of them have come from afar. Now listen to this answer of the disciples. This must go down in history as the classic answer of disbelief. And his disciples answered him, How can one satisfy these people with bread here in the wilderness? I just sense there's a bit of a silence from the Lord's part. Then he replies, How many loaves Do you have? And they said, Seven. So he commanded the multitude to sit down on the ground. The same routine, basically. He took the seven loaves and gave thanks, broke them, and gave them to his disciples to set before them. And they sat them before the multitude. They also had a few small fish, and having blessed them, he said to set them also before them. So they ate and were filled, and they took up seven large baskets of leftover fragments. Now those who had eaten were about four thousand, and he sent them away. Can you see a pattern here? The disciples had actually seen him multiply. However, a few days later, in the same situation, when asked, 
to provide the same question, how are we going to do it? The point is that even though intellectually they knew God could do it, for some reason they couldn't see him doing it again. And the point is that even though they knew in their minds he could do it, they did not really believe on that occasion that he could do it again. Is that not so typical of us Christians? We read in the Bible of the great miracles that the Lord who is here, the same yesterday, today and forever, will all say, yes, amen, he lives in my heart, amen, hallelujah. He raised people from the dead. Oh my soul, I might get COVID. Can you see? And if we were to ask somebody, do you think God can heal you from COVID? Of course he can, no doubt. And yet, such fear. My point is this. You and I can agree. And we must agree, intellectually, about what God can do. If we don't agree intellectually, there's no hope, as we are going to see, of our faith ever developing. But we cannot afford to confuse that intellectual agreement with faith. It is not the same thing. The intellectual agreement will not stand the test when put under pressure. Only real faith whatever that is, will. So I hope we've grasped this. Faith is not an intellectual state of mind. Mental assent is not the same thing as faith. Faith is something far, far greater. Not the preserve of the soul, as we've said, and as we are going to discuss, the preserve of the spirit. In the same vein, let's go to the second thing that faith is not. Faith is not a feeling. You can have an occasion where somebody may be in hospital and you go and see them and they say, I'm feeling great. The doctor's report is positive. I'm feeling great. I've had a good night's sleep. My faith is high. The very next day, perhaps a negative report, perhaps some discomfort, the person's down in the dumps, and they say, my faith is very low. We'll have to pray for it. Now that right there is a misunderstanding of faith. As we say, faith is not the preserve of the soul. Feelings are. Let's go to the classic example of this in the book of Matthew. Matthew 9, 20-22. This is the whole story which we are going to return to as a classic passage of scripture. And this whole understanding of faith, this woman with the issue of blood. Let's just read it. Matthew 9, 20-22 And suddenly, a woman who had a flow of blood for twelve years came from behind and touched the hem of his garment. For she said to herself, If only I can touch his garment, I shall be made well. But Yeshua turned around, and when he saw her, he said, Be of good cheer, daughter, your faith has made you well. And the woman was made well from that hour. 
Now, to fully understand this story, we have to look at the context. She had an issue of blood, this issue of blood for 12 years. In other words, her life strength was draining out of her for 12 years. After 12 years of that condition, anybody will be physically weak. So this woman, please understand, anemic and physically weak. But that's not all that was against her. Secondly, she had been to many doctors who I'm sure tried their best, but couldn't help her. And of course they charged her for their services, and as a result, drained not only her blood, but her savings. So she's poor. She's a poverty-stricken individual. Anyone who's experienced poverty will know how debilitating that condition is. So she's very weak. She's suffering from poverty. And also, please understand, in the culture of the time, a woman in her condition would be regarded as unclean. That means she was not allowed to associate with anybody. Now, that would mean that as an individual, after 12 years, without much human contact, she must have been very lonely. An outcast in her society. So, in addition to being physically weak, financially poverty-stricken, isolated, lonely, she has this disease with no hope in the natural of any healing, of any relief. Anybody in that condition, if you were to ask them, how are you feeling? would most likely say, I feel terrible, if they're honest. Now, she hears about the healing power of this man, Yeshua. And in her heart, she resolves to touch him. She knows that he's coming to town. And I can imagine she prepares as best she can and she braces herself. In the village, she probably hears the hubbub, sees him coming from afar and takes the opportunity. Slipping out, not wanting to be noticed, most likely her head covered, most likely very weak, struggling to walk, but determined nonetheless. Then she negotiates the crowd. For any of us who have experienced a crowd, you'll know that it's a very difficult force to negotiate because in a sense you have to lose your will. You go with the crowd. Despite that, she pushes in. Probably having to resort to getting on her hands and knees and creeping between the legs of all these people. She pushes on nonetheless. Now, we have to understand, on top of all of this, is the fact that according to the law of the day, if she was caught in public, in her unclean condition, she was liable to be stoned. And the people who would officiate would be the leaders of the synagogue. So here she is, crawling through the crowd, and who does she see at the right hand of the Lord? 
this man she has to touch. None other than Jairus, the leader of the synagogue, who by the way had a sick child. Imagine, looking at that, anybody, anybody would be justified in saying, this is a bridge too far, I'm going back. But she didn't. She pushed on. And she manages to get within touching range, as it were. Now the question is, if you had to ask her, woman, right now, how do you feel? Understand? How do you feel? She might say something like, weak, terrified, and totally, totally alone. In other words, her feelings were at an all-time low. Nonetheless, she touched the garment, and we know that the power of God flowed into her. And what did the Lord say? Turning around, knowing something had happened, identifying her, what did he say? Woman, your faith has made you whole. In other words, that ingredient of faith, even though she felt terrible, was there. In great measure. We've got to grasp this. We've got to grasp this. The point is, how you and I feel has got nothing to do with our faith. It can help, by the way, and it's important. Feelings are important, but we must not confuse them with faith. Faith, being a spiritual entity, transcends the realm of the soul. Feelings are the realm of the soul. So I'm hoping we grasp this. If you're not feeling well, doesn't mean you don't have faith. They're not the same thing. You see, they're not the same thing. The other side of the coin is because you and I might be feeling good, doesn't mean our faith is strong. On the contrary, that's probably when it's at its weakest. So let's understand. First of all, faith is not an intellectual state of mind, mere mental assent. It is not a feeling or an emotion. Amen? Not a feeling or an emotion. The next thing we need to say here is that faith is not a magic formula. Faith is not a magic formula. Unfortunately, because of the importance of faith, the enemy has made it his duty to try and muddy the waters in everybody's thinking about faith and teachings on faith. And we're going to be talking about how to apply faith and to develop faith, etc. But one of the misunderstandings was that faith reduced to a simple formula of what you say, and hey presto, it happens. I'm here to say that what we say is critically important, but faith is not a magic formula. Let's go to scripture just to explain this. Acts 19, 11-17 Now God worked unusual miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons were brought from his body to the sick, and the diseases left them, and the evil spirits went out of them. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists took it upon themselves to call the name of the Lord, Yeshua, over those who had evil spirits, saying, We exorcise you by Yeshua whom Paul preaches. 
Also, there were seven sons of Sceva, Jewish chief priest, who did so. And the evil spirit answered and said, Yeshua, I know, and Paul, I know, but who are you? Then the man in whom the evil spirit was leaped on them, overpowered them, and prevailed against them, so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. Hallelujah. Now, what is the point? You see, Paul was operating in the power of Almighty God. And he was invoking the name Yeshua. People who were involved with the spirit world saw this. And what did they do? They took over that name and applied it like a magic formula. You see, they didn't understand how it's supposed to operate. They took the outward trappings and thought that that would work. It's almost like abracadabra. You just use some magic word and it all happens. You see, but it didn't happen. In fact, what happened was exactly the opposite of what they wanted. They were dabbling in something they knew nothing about. So you see, when you and I approach faith, please understand, there are certain teachings that could be reduced to what people would say, name it and claim it. Alright? There's a place for the right profession. We are going to speak about that in great detail. But that profession is not simply stating things as a magic formula. Mouthing off the word of God as a magic formula. Faith has got nothing to do with that. Hope we understand this. The other thing I'd like to just say as we end this lesson, there are another few other points we'll have to make and reserve them for the next lesson, is that faith is not the membership of a certain organization. Because you and I associate with certain people with certain understandings does not mean that we ourselves now have faith. Let's go to Mark 9, 17 to 19. Mark 9, 17-19 Very interesting scripture this. Then one of the crowd answered and said, Teacher, I brought you my son, who has a mute spirit. And wherever it seizes him, it throws him down. He foams at the mouth, gnashes his teeth, and becomes rigid. So I spoke to your disciples that they should cast it out. But they couldn't. Alright? Now we are going to return to that scripture in great detail. But the point is this. Those disciples were part of the organization. The cutting edge spiritual organization on the face of the earth. They were part of the evangelical outfit led by Yeshua himself. Alright? They were part and parcel of it. And yet... When push came to shove, they didn't have the faith necessary, you see. And the Lord said about them, O faithless generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I bear with you? Bring him to me. And he did the miracle. The point we want to just make right here is this. Even though the disciples were associated 
with the Messiah himself. They didn't have the faith at that stage. That was necessary. You and I can belong to the church. And because we belong to the church of God, that's an important thing. But it does not mean that we necessarily have faith. It does mean that we have access to faith, as we will see. And that connection is vitally important. But it cannot be confused with faith. So in this lesson, I hope we've learned this. Faith is not an intellectual state of mind. Mere mental assent is not faith. It is not a feeling or an emotion. Feeling good is not faith. Faith is not some artificial magic formula that we just spout forth and it happens. Not at all. That is a mistake to try and reduce faith, the teaching on faith, to that level. And then faith does not evolve because you and I belong to an organization. That connection is vitally important, but it is not faith. Faith is something you and I as individuals have to develop, and as we develop it individually, so it improves collectively. What are we going to learn about these things? I trust that you've been blessed so far. We will continue lesson two next week, as we have a few other things to mention about what faith is not. We do not want to rush them, and time is running out. So in closing, I'm just going to pray. Father God, as we continue discussing this vital subject of faith, may our understanding gradually develop so that we might have a clear knowledge of what you understand of faith. And more importantly, that we will be equipped to develop faith in our hearts to achieve the great purposes of God. We ask this in the wonderful name of Yeshua. Amen.